G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Why are we doing this series? The reason it's important to do this series is to remind us that in our time, demonic activity has gone to warp speed in the West. I'm simply trying to answer three questions. And the first is, why is this happening? From where does it all come and what are we supposed to do? We have to come to terms with what's going on in our world right now. We have to go back to Ephesians 6 and we have to realize this is not anything new. It's been going on for a long time, but something happened in culture recently to take this to warp speed. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello, my name is Bill and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. This week, Pastor Jeff begins a new series about being under the influence, under the influence of culture and the influence of evil. In this message, he sets up the aim of the series, starting by reading from Ephesians 6 and explaining some of the deeper meaning found by exploring the original language and the time in which it was written. Let's begin this first message in the series now with Pastor Jeff. This weekend, we began a new series called Under the Influence. And uh, this series is especially powerful because of where we find ourselves in culture at the moment. So whether you're listening live, wherever you are, I really want to ask you to commit to listen to the next four or five messages because they're interconnected. If somehow you think, well, that's not completed, we've not finished, there are more questions, it's because we can't do it all in one message and we'll make our way through this series. And I think at the end of it, my prayer is that we will be, we will have our spiritual eyes open to what's going on around us, why it's happening, and how we are to respond. So I want to start the series in a passage with which most of us are familiar. We've been reading for years, but I'm not sure we've taken it very seriously. And it's in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It's where the Apostle Paul clearly tells us that the Christian life is a battle. It's an everyday battle. You wake up, you're in battle right away. And so let me take you through this. What I've done is I've written this verse, uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 12, on the board And I want to do a little bit of exegesis for I want you to learn some words because these words are powerful. Unless we truly understand them, we're not going to get the, we're not going to allow this, this passage to pack the punch that it really can. Okay. So here's what Paul says. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, powers, and world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, again, we've read this for most of our lives in my late twenties and early thirties. I began to be captivated by this passage and wondered why Paul used certain words. Okay, so let's start with struggle. Struggle is pale, which is the word for boxing or wrestling or any kind of combat. You and I think of it 
in a kind of benign form, but the word Paul uses, which is different from other words for battle or the, the idea of striving or struggling, this particular word refers to an aggressive kind of boxing or wrestling. In fact, boxing today, again, is, it's not benign. It's, it's pretty brutal. But back in Roman days, boxing, the boxing uh, gloves actually had blades on the end of them. So when you were in a boxing match, you just weren't fighting to win a bout. You were fighting for your life. And usually in a boxing match and a wrestling match, somebody was not only going to lose, they were going to die. So it was you're fighting ultimately to the death. So the struggle, this struggle is intense. We're fighting for our lives. It's not against flesh and blood. So he uses Jaime and he uses Sarka. These are two words when used together. It's meant to separate what is in the celestial, what is up there that can't be seen from the terrestrial, what is in, what is material, what can be seen. So he says, this struggle, this battle for life and death is not fought in flesh and blood. It's not hand-to-hand combat, physically speaking, but against, and then he mentions three things. Now, again, earlier on, I just passed over them. Then I began to see what he was actually doing by choosing these specific words. Rulers, powers, and world forces. The word for rulers is archus, from which we get our word architect. So what Paul's doing here, he is establishing a well-organized strata. He's saying that the demonic forces against which we struggle are organized. Uh, Just like we would have uh, Congress who draws up the legislation and then the generals who develop strategy and then that the men and women who are in our own forces go out deployed and march in to accomplish the strategy and the legislation, he's telling us that the evil empire that we cannot see is also very well organized. So he says, rulers, the architects, they draw out the plans, the same word as principalities. It's the highest order of demons. It's the authorities who determine legislation. And then it's also against the powers. This is uxusius, which is the word for, from which we get our word execute. So these are the generals who lead the demonic forces who are supposed to execute the principality orders or the highest order of demons and the architect of whatever the law or the bill, for lack of a better word, is. And it's against world forces. This is the cosmocrators that we've talked about before. This is a specific reference to the terrestrial. So what Paul is saying is, when you look at how men and women around the world, dictators, leaders, powers, governments are operating, make sure you understand that they're the final piece of the puzzle, but not the original piece of the puzzle. The architect of what's happening comes from the demonic leaders, the principalities passed down to the general demons who then execute it as they dupe human forces into their way of thinking and use them as the vehicle to get this dastardly deed done. And so what Paul is giving us is a hierarchy. He's given us a strata of demonic forces. He says that our battle's not in the here and now against flesh. It's in the here and now, but not against flesh, but it's against a highly strategized, orchestrated, organized demonic force that intends to work through people who are not protected ultimately by the Spirit of Christ. He says these world forces are of this darkness. Against Again, he reemphasizes the spiritual. So he's, he's making a comparison against the, what is called the pneumatica, what is spiritual, 
what cannot be seen over and against the physical, what can be seen, the darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness. So now do we have a fourth strata? And by the way, this word wickedness, forces of wickedness, almost always has to do, not always, almost always has to do with sexual perversion. So it's Paul's way of saying that you know you're fighting this battle into a culture that has a cosmocrator that originates from the archos, from the principalities of the spirits of the air. You know you're fighting those forces. One of the ways you know that is culture becomes incredibly evil, especially in the area of sexual perversion. And he says this battle, these, these forces of wickedness are in the heavenly places. Now, this doesn't mean heaven in the sense of where we go when we die to be with Jesus. This is the Greek word uranos, which is a word that simply refers to atmosphere. So in the Lord's prayer, when Jesus says, when you pray, pray our father who art in heaven, he's not talking about the final heaven you and I will go to. He's talking about our father who's, in, who's closer than the air that we breathe, who's all around. You can't see him, but he's there. So Taking all that together, we're supposed to learn there's a different strata and rankings of the demons in a supernatural empire that is very real, that's highly organized. There are dupes in men and women of Satan and his demons who they need to use and occupy to accomplish their dastardly deeds. And then it's highly structured and organized for the most destructive warfare possible. So just in this one verse... Paul is trying to tell us the battle is real. It's every day. There are forces around you that are unseen. They are highly structured. They are highly organized. And they need, so to speak, a host through whom to work to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish, which is ultimately the defeat of everything that is good and righteousness and righteous and ultimately to take people away from God. So we learn four quick things. Number one, the unseen impacts the seen. The reason I wrote the name Louis Pasteur there is because if you've studied the sciences, you know that he was the first one to come up with what is called spontaneous generation or germ theory. So in the 1800s, people thought that viruses just appear out of nowhere and there's no explanation and they're not connected to anything else. Louis Pasteur came along and said, no, that's not true. There are millions of germs everywhere that land on your food, that land on your body, that land here and there that you can't see that impacts and determines the physical world. And at first, that was something they said, we got to keep this away from people. That'll freak them out. They, they, when they realize the enemy's all around and they could be tainted somehow by these viruses, that will cause mass chaos. And of course, Louis Pasteur said no, because a lot of these are ultimately harmless. But we need to be aware there is a, an unseen world that impacts the seen world, the celestial or the atmosphere impacting the terrestrial. Second, by the way, it's important to know that what is true in the biological world is true in the spiritual world. That's what Jesus teaches. In the same way that spontaneous generation occurs, there's also a generation of demonic forces that impact the physical world. Second, the demonic forces are well organized. You have architects who determine legislation, generals who execute the strategy, and forces who march and enact. These forces are human, but they're greatly impacted by the spirit world. Third, the demonic forces are led by Satan. Now, Satan is the ultimate. He's like the president, okay, of this demonic world. But he is not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He's not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful, and he's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere. He's not Jesus, and he doesn't have the power of God. But he does have demonic forces that are present everywhere, legions that are present everywhere that carry out these dastardly deeds, 
And fourth, the demonic forces are anti-God and anti-Christ. They seek to corrupt all that is good, to deceive all people and all nations, to destroy allegiance away from God. And that's the entire gamut of ideology coming from the forces of evil. Dethrone God, ruin the lives of people. Jesus said, I came to give life, but the thief, there is one who comes to rob and to steal and ultimately to destroy. Now, bottom line here, why are we doing this series? The reason it's important to do this series is to remind us that in our time, demonic activity has gone to warp speed in the West. Uh, I was just back in my home in Tennessee and I got to see my brothers. I had a good conversation with my younger brother. He said, you know, Jeff, something has changed. Have you noticed? And I had noticed because Tennessee, you know, East Tennessee has been the middle of the Bible belt. And quite frankly, I was shocked to see, to see it's been years since I've been back, but shocked to see some of the things I was witnessing. We had, I mean, can you imagine East Tennessee road rage? I mean, people were cutting each other off. I mean, we're not talking about the traffic that we have here in LA. And yet there was so much rage all around me of people pulling in, people honking their horns. There seemed to be just a, a culture or a, an overarching sense of anger that I did not notice and had not noticed before. There's also vulgarity. I was not used to having people behind the counter at restaurants and public places cursing so much and profanity. And it's just like language has gone to a different level in East Tennessee, something you wouldn't have seen 10, 15, 20 years ago. I'm not trying to glorify the past, folks. I'm simply saying things are moving rapidly. They are changing. I noticed an intense degree of anger and frustration and bitterness and rage and hopelessness, fear, especially among the next generation, a sense of hopelessness, a rise in immorality, pornography is off the charts in East Tennessee now, adultery debauchery everywhere. In fact, I went downtown Johnson City. Uh, used to be a very nice place, a pleasant place to, to, to go for coffee, for a restaurant, for walking in the parks and the fountains. It's totally changed now. We're not talking about San Francisco or Portland. We're talking about a, a city in the Midwest, in the middle of the Bible Belt, has become drug infested, filled with prostitution. It just seems like you can feel this incredible, corrupt, evil cloud hanging over the city. It was scary. It was frightening. But at the same time, it was so disappointing. This series that we're doing right now, I'm simply trying to answer three questions. And the first is, why is this happening? From where does it all come? And what are we supposed to do? We have to come to terms with what's going on in our world right now. We have to go back to Ephesians 6. And we have to realize this is not anything new. It's been going on for a long time but something happened in culture recently to take this to warp speed. So let's answer the first question quickly. We don't have time to go through the whole thing this weekend. We're gonna set the stage. Why is this happening? The answer is simple in some respects because the Judeo-Christian values that had caused the West to prosper have slowly been eradicated, thus removing the blessings that are associated with them. For the last 2,000 years, the Jesus movement had infiltrated much of the Western world and has brought with it an economic flourishing and a pushing back of demonic forces. These demonic forces are real, but they have no chance. They cannot stand against the authority and the power of Judeo-Christian values and against Jesus and his Christ followers themselves. But what happens when those things are eradicated from culture and society. Now, 
So no, the past generation was not perfect, but because of the Jesus movement beginning about 2,000 years ago and infiltrating much of the West, we know in scripture that Jesus, when he began his ministry, one of the first things he did is began to cast out demons because his power was greater than demonic forces. And part of his ministry was to come and to undo them, to relegate them to the fringes, to set them up for one day ultimate judgment. Again, let me read it to you in Matthew chapter 12. But if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. So Jesus saw his ministry as binding the strong man. Luke 10 again, the 70 return with joy. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name, in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning. So with the Jesus movement 2,000 years ago, if you go back and look at all of history before Christ, you're going to see a dramatic change in the West as the gospel started to penetrate every culture, as it made its way through Asia, Asia Minor, as Paul in his missionary journeys, culture began to change. There's no doubt about that. It's an historical reality. So if these same places attempt to eradicate Jesus, it does so at its own peril. That means the demonic forces that have been relegated to the fringes can now come back in and take center stage. That means that the rulers and the powers and the principalities can return, that the walls will have been broken down and the armies now are free to march back in. I want to read to you something that Jesus taught in Matthew 12. This is what he said in verse 43. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So if you see what Jesus is saying, and this is Jesus talking, it is not enough to cast out the spirits. The house, the vessel, the nation, the generation must be occupied by something else. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus leaves his home in heaven. He overpowers the demonic forces, defeats sin and death once and for all. The Roman Empire and Western civilization comprised of the house of spirits. My goodness, if you know anything about Greek mythology, going all the way back down even to the when the Israelites came into the promised land, you've got all these false gods, these demonic forces that are tolerated. But when Jesus comes, he impacts the Roman empire, the Western world. And suddenly into that house where demonic forces are now swept clean, the spirit of God, the gospel comes into the lives and begins to transform one person after the next. And the gospel spread like wildfire. And everything in the West changed. Again, this is historically verifiable because of the Jesus movement. People stopped sacrificing their children on molten altars. Now, I didn't say everyone, but there was a great movement in the Jesus movement to protect the lives of the innocent. Something that you will not see before the Jesus movement. People began treating women equally because Jesus said there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond or slave. We're all one in Christ. Men and women stopped throwing Deformed children into the rivers, consider them to be waste because it was decided because of the Jesus movement that we are created in the image of God and all life needs to be respected because it's a gift from God. Families began respecting one another and living 
not merely for themselves, but for the family unit because the Jesus movement taught us that the family unit and the strength of the family is the key to culture and to success. The sick were no longer discarded because they were ill. The disease were no longer put out of the city. Hospitals, places almost out of the earth began to rise up and to, rather than to discard people who were ill, who had disease, even if it was terminal, even if it was contagious. Suddenly, because of the Jesus movement, you had groups of people, Christ followers, taking care of the sick, even at the cost of their own lives. The Ten Commandments actually began to govern most societies in the West, either indirectly by influence or directly because of belief. Now, did society always get it right? No. Were there still sinful, perverted, debaucherous people in the West? Of course, absolutely. But the Jesus movement pushed back the immorality and began transforming culture from the inside out. The before and after Jesus is amazing. And I want to suggest two books to you. Number one, Dr. James Kennedy wrote a book called, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? Incredible history here. Grab it, read it. And John Oberg wrote a more, it's historical, but it's also more applicational. And that is a book called, Who Is This Man? To talk about the influence of the Jesus movement over the Western world. So Jesus came, he drove out spirits. It became possible for Jesus to live within the hearts of men and women. That is the message of the gospel. But listen carefully. In Matthew 8, on one particular occasion, we're told that when Jesus arrived at the other side in the region of Gardenus, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent and no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Now, most of us know this story, but notice in the first parable in Matthew 12, if the spirit finds no rest, they seek to return to a house to possess it or repossess it. When Jesus casts out demons in the second story, the spirits pleaded with him to cast them into the pigs. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that the spirits are parasitic. They need a host to possess. So the spirits that were cast out of Western culture because of the Jesus movement, because of Jesus coming on the inside to transform us from the inside out. And of course, the Bible says he causes it to rain on the righteous and the unrighteousness. Because of the righteous movement, even the unrighteous were affected. Culture began to thrive. And all, you know that, that's, that's not rocket science again when you have the Jesus movement teaching you to be honest and to have in integrity and character and to treat your brother, to love your neighbor as yourself, of course society's gonna be better. Of course it's gonna be stronger. So the Jesus movement sweeps across the Western world. But when Jesus is eradicated, according to what Jesus teaches, the spirits are eradicated to the fringes. Relegated is a better word to the fringes. They're still in the universe but they don't have the power and the sway over a nation or a culture or a movement where Jesus dominates the hearts of men and women. Now, the question is, what happens when Jesus is expelled out of those hearts of men and women? And the answer, of course, according to Jesus would be, the demonic forces see that there's an opportunity to return. The house has been swept clean and now they think it's their right to occupy it so that the possession is deeper and more intense now than it was in the beginning. 
Let's be very clear about what I'm saying here. Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. The demonic forces are subject to him, no doubt. His followers took the gospel to the West and relegated the forces of evil to the fringes or the secret places. Judeo-Christianity swept the house clean and invited Jesus to occupy the hearts and souls of men everywhere. However, since the turn of the last century, the Jesus movement has been attacked on every side. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Let's be very clear about what I'm saying here. Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. The demonic forces are subject to him, no doubt. His followers took the gospel to the West and relegated the forces of evil to the fringes or the secret places. Judeo-Christianity swept the house clean and invited Jesus to occupy the hearts and souls of men everywhere. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.